never give it. Never give it. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. That's right. Never give in, never give in, never give in. This is conversations about Eastern Europe. You just heard the voice of Winston Churchill as of October 1941. He was the Prime Minister of Great Britain back then as they were fighting Nazi Germany. At the point he made that speech, Britain had fought alone almost a year against Nazi Germany and they had been on the defensive for the most part of that year. I think there is a lot of parallels between the situation Britain was in back then and the situation Ukraine is in today. Of course, it's two different situations given the international environment and the actors um, and the magnitude of World War II, but Ukraine has also fought alone a self-defense war for a year now, and now they are about to go on the offensive. And the never give in quote is also relevant in a lot of other ways. We see now a lot of European leaders, a lot of EU representatives and so on saying different things about what should be done if certain things does or does not happen with regards to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. To anybody who, like me, think that Ukraine has a very legit claim uh, to all the territory they were granted under international law as of 1991, I just think to all these types, you must never give in. Don't give in when Macron says wrong stuff about Ukraine. Don't give in when Schultz says wrong stuff about Ukraine. And don't give in when anyone tries to tell you that it is not completely fair to fight for the fact that Ukraine have the right to every single part of their territory as of 1991. That's what freedom is. That is what freedom is about. Today, I speak with Marina Myron, who is a military analytic from King's College in London. That also makes a connection to the Churchill quote. Um, but anyways, um, she is a German uh, who speaks fluently in a lot of languages, including Russian and Ukrainian. Enjoy. Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine. This time I'm speaking with Marina Myron, who is a military analytic um, from Great Britain. And she will soon um, say a bit more about what she's doing um, and why she's doing it. But I just want to explain my project to you beforehand so you also have a sense of what I'm doing. And um, this is a project called Conversations about Eastern Europe, which is a series of conversations between me and various guests, um, those being you, who is an expert with... Um, I would say credibility um, when speaking about the subject. It will be with um, Ukrainians telling their story about how it is to go through uh, a war like like they are doing. It will be with um, also, for example, democratic activists in Georgia who also uh, not so recently um, had to violate, as a, who had to actively 
um, violently participate in a protest that led to the um, legislation um, of um, prohibiting, basically, or marking um, foreign, uh, not foreign, um, Georgian organizations who received more than 20% of their funds from abroad as foreign agents. Um, so they succeeded with that, which I just want, I think is an important point because it proves that political participation uh, actually um, can disrupt autocratic developments. Um, and and that is what I also want to do by doing this conversation series. Um, so it is not just a podcast, uh, so to say, because I think podcast in the uh, realm of poli uh, political activity, at least, um, is sort of something that you listen to and then you find the right voices um, and then afterwards you talk with your friends and um, then maybe you don't really do so much about it um, more than that. Uh, you don't actively go out to the streets. Um, you don't participate in party politics, for example. Um, so I just want to say that this is not, not just a podcast um, like that. I want people to get the message from me um, that they are encouraged to actively participate in the struggle for freedom and in this in the struggle um for um ukraine's uh, fight against russian um aggressions and i'm saying aggressions i could have said um something much more clear but um that would maybe sometimes i think saying these things also strays a bit away from the focus because they are so brutal and so on um yeah, so that was just um, my um, introduction going into this conversation um, because I think it is important always to keep your focus um, where it should be with regards to um, to what you're talking about. So, yeah, and this is also a conversation, not just me asking you questions, but can you tell uh, a bit about who you are, what you're doing, and um, maybe also uh, try to um, explain a little bit why you're doing it, um, why you are where you are today and so on. Right. Well, Emil, thanks for having me. First of all, uh, my name is Dr. Marina Myron. I am a postdoctoral researcher at um, the War Studies Department at King's College London. And this is a department that focuses on everything, including security. And we basically teach civilians who want to pursue that specific topic. Uh, previously, and uh, still now I'm working with the Defense Studies Department, um, which is doing pretty much the same only for the military. So it's located at the <clears throat> Joint Command and uh, Staff College in Schwingen. And uh, my focus is on military strategy more broadly and military technology. So I'm um, not doing much of kind of politics um, in a sense that you are. I'm more focusing on, on kind of on the grand strategic level. So I'm not questioning a particular policy. I'm not there to evaluate. I, would, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a political scientist who evaluates um, the policy morally. I say, okay, so, so this is a policy, you know, how viable it is, is there kind of a strategic sense in pursuing this policy, other available means, you know, and they can include from kind of economic, logistical, informational, diplomatic, uh, military, and so on. So this is more kind of the area that I focus on. 
And obviously, it's very difficult to <laughs> escape politics in today's world, especially against the background of the war in Ukraine. So you have to go back and look at the history. You have to look at geopolitics. You have to kind of try to, to get a bigger picture in order to understand certain processes and be able to situate them um, more or less accurately. Only then can uh, certain actions make sense. And so what I've been trying to do throughout the war since I have been focusing, so one part of my research is on Russia and Russia's military capabilities as, as well as Russia's military doctrines um, to include also naval and, and, and air and space doctrines as well as information doctrines. And this is um, kind of my big project now is Russia's information war. And, you know, what can we do about Russia's information war? How does Russia perceive information war and how does it conduct information war? And it's a very different kind of story from what we understand in the West. You know, when we talk about information war, we think, okay, propaganda, but it's so much more than that. It, it, it encompasses pretty much everything in the entire information spectrum, not limited to cyberspace. It, it, it's both electronic warfare, it's, you know, the use of space assets and so on and so forth, you know, the use of... It's also psychological, right? That That is the whole point is that, you know, the Russians had this um, idea of reflexive control back in the 70s, a uh, theory of um, reflexive control. And, and this is something that we're seeing now kind of being enacted because even with the likes of cyber attacks where the Russians are, or even patriotic hackers, you know, attribution is very difficult, um, are conducting cyber technical attacks on, say, critical infrastructure. The idea is to create chaos, um, a sense of controlled chaos um, in a mathematical sense in order to be able to influence your adversary. So essentially, it's about um, undermining the decision making, undermining the information security of your adversary while protecting your own. And that that is as broad as it gets. So pretty much everything uh, falls in, within this kind of idea of information war. And that is my main focus right now. And so given the fact that um, I'm already focusing on Russia and I've been doing a lot of kind of Russian military stuff, uh, looking at Ukraine um, is natural because this is where we see Russia's performance. Um, you know, how does a theory differ um, differ from practice from what we're seeing on the ground because they have those beautiful series and I believe Valery Zalushny, um, the, the the Ukrainian um, <clears throat> chief of general staff, he said, you know, he was uh, very impressed by General Gerasimov and by Gerasimov's writings, you know, and, and now I, I, I think he must be very disappointed or, or, or at least in part disappointed, you know, seeing kind of Russian performance. So it must be said that um, General Gerasimov probably doesn't have. Can I, yeah. can I, uh, can I say one yeah. thing here? It's because uh, I know this, um, it's a Danish conservative who now works in the army and has um, recently been at least, I don't know if he's back there already, but he, he has been in the Baltic uh, states, I think, as a part of the Danish uh, force there, military force. And he said that he, he is also um, political science like me. And he said that his master was about the improvements of the Russian army and how that it would um, yeah, uh, change the, the game in the yeah, news uh, world um, like coming 
back from the 90s and so on. And he said in a, in, in a that, that's a, uh, just a podcast, um, but he said that he could just basically scrap all that now because of what he has, um, what he has seen, yeah, with the Russian um, force and so on. And I think it's, it's a bit like the same, right, that you are alluding to there. Well, what, what I'm trying to say is that we have to understand as well, the one thing is theory and one thing is what Gerasimov might have suggested to Putin and Shoigu back in February 2022. And another thing, what has been adopted. So the, the, the idea here... Can I just say one more thing yeah. here? Because I think that the point is that what uh, Karasimov was saying um, is not just something that was conveyed to Putin and um, and to other people in the Russian government. It was also conveyed to the academics in the field in the West, at least to a certain degree. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just like to put in that uh, perspective also to what you are, are saying right now. Well, we have to to remember that, you know, the, the infamous Gerasimov doctrine that appeared in 2013. And as a matter of fact, you know, if we look deeper at it, it's not his doctrine and it's not novel. And that's been going on, uh, you know, in academic and military writings in Russia for at least uh, 50 years, you know, before Gerasimov came uh, there and said, OK, let's let, let's sum it all up and, and see um, what comes out. So the point being is that, you know, we, we have a contrasting performance of the Russian armed forces in Syria, which is a completely different theater. And, and, and the conditions were different in a sense of in what role Russia was um, appearing in Syria, what strategic objectives it had in Syria and so on. So the point here is that lack of preparedness could also um, curtail the capabilities of the armed forces because it's not like you can just say, oh, let's deploy um, 100,000 troops to X, right? You have to do a lot of logistics. You have to do a lot of planning. So I think what what Russia has done is that it, it, it counted on something. It counted on plan, plan A, but it didn't have a proper plan, plan B. And when plan A didn't work out, to basically regain the initiative is very difficult. You're already in the going kind of um, struggle there. And so that's that's a problem that we're seeing now. So it, it would be unfair to say it's Grasimov's fault or it's Shoigu's fault. I mean, there are a lot of factors at play. That being said, it's very dangerous to overestimate your adversary, but it's even more dangerous to underestimate them. So I'm not um making any judgments as of yet uh, when it comes to russian performance because those on the ground they had a very very difficult time and they were on the receiving end these are the guys who are not you know making political decisions and, and they're kind of thrown into that situation and then they have to do the best they can and because of how how uh, inflexible the russian armed forces are it it, it must have been a kind of um yeah, they, they were stuck between a um, rock and a hard place because um, you you cannot disobey an order. You essentially get shot and, you know, that that's a similar proceeding that you see kind of in, in the Wagner group uh, thing um, going there. And the, the, the other thing is that the, the, they know what to do, but they don't have the capability to um, make decisions independently. So all the decisions had to be 
approved by Moscow and, and namely by the general staff. And so the general staff had no idea what's going on on the ground. And so this kind of rigidity, uh, all the decisions having to go through kind of uh, all the echelons of military hierarchy. I mean, that's another factor why Russian performance has been so poor. So, I mean, it's it's a very, very complex topic. That's just looking at the Russian side. That's, you know, not taking it into account the Ukrainian side and the will and so on. Yeah, can I can I just uh, can I just step in here? Because um, a lot of the things that you're saying um, is the reasoning uh, for me uh, before the war that I thought that um, Ukraine uh, would resist and that I thought that um, the Russian army would not be as competent as everybody apparently thought it were. Um, and it, it was it's a bit weird, like, because, okay, now, now going back to uh, my um, uh, memories in the beginning of the war, um, not no before the war, in the beginning of February leading up to the war. Um, so when I realized that Russia um, was about to invade Ukraine or that Russia was about to um, try to make a negotiation with Ukraine, which were the two theories I had of what was going to happen um, in the beginning of February. I believe the military experts um, like you, um, I also spoke with the Danish military expert uh, two weeks ago, I think, um, though, like the military experts, at least the serious military experts, um, they already stated pretty early. Um, I think a lot of them, at least, that a war was very much a possibility. Um, some of them then also conveyed a message about that war not necessarily um, falling out in the favor of Russia. Um, but that's just going back to my own um, predictions because of all the things that you're saying, it's just something I think that nobody understood before the war, basically. Um, that's why the British and US intelligence ended up saying the things they were. And if you look at it from a military logic, it makes sense that you would, oh, okay, let me put it like this. If you look at it from the military, the, um, the dominating discourse in military logic before Russia invaded Ukraine, it made sense that Russia should, um, had have taken Kiev in three days, for example. Um, you don't no. okay. So you think it was wrong or what? No, no. Uh, maybe, maybe it's more political discourse or something like that. No, yeah. it's it, it's. Yeah, please talk. Please talk now. Please talk. No, now, it's yeah. it's not about political discourse. I think it was a big uh, underestimation of the capabilities of the Ukrainian armed forces and generally of the sentiment to take Kiev in three days. The point is that. It, it, you know, and, and I, I, I don't like to kind of go back and theorize what might have been. But on the one hand, um, you know, the Russian intelligence services, they have somehow skewed the picture. That is coupled with the fact that um, Putin had his kind of own idea about what Ukraine is. And so the, the, his memories were Ukraine 2014, Maidan and, and, and that, you know. And between then and 2022, the capabilities have changed. And so, you know, and Ukraine had the simmering war in the Donbass because the actual war has started in 2014, arguably, and not, you know, it's an escalation, so to say, but um, it's been going on. It's just, you know, nobody really paid a lot of attention to that. 
And so the, the, the idea to take Kiev in three days, that, that was a gamble. And that was a gamble based on, on a flawed premise, on a, on a flawed understanding of, um, of the adversary but, in this case. But US and British intelligence also thought Kiev would fall in three days, if you go back and look at it. Well, so what? I, so I mean, I just think that uh, it, it doesn't really matter I, what, what the US intelligence thought. It, the matter is that the Russians have completely underestimated how Kiev would react. And, you know, intelligence. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah, that, that is very, very true. But I, I, I just think my point is that there goes so much into why we, not, why we didn't expect that. Um, so, first of all, I think, um, I, and I, and I re actually, I really don't think that it is the field of military analytics um, that are the the root um, or the cause for us not um, viewing for viewing for ourselves before the war what the Ukrainians would do. It was because we didn't understood Ukrainians. We didn't understood uh, Ukraine basically, um, and and I think what we didn't understood were how willing they would be to fight. Uh, <coughs> Like to a certain degree, um, and and that's not necessarily, uh, or that is not um, something that goes back to military analytics. Um, that is something, to me at least, that goes back to a lack of understanding of the political situation in um, Ukraine, and and the political situation on so many uh, levels, um, like identity wise. Um, ideologically uh, wise, um, also in a sense of how badly does the Ukraines want democracy. Um, and I think you can just, um, if you watch the Winter on Fire uh, documentary about the Maidan um, revolution, which developed into the revolution of dignity, it becomes pretty clear um, what kind of society um, the Ukrainians are. And then what you're talking about is that also after that revolution, after what happened with the invasion of Crimea and um, Donbass and so on, politically, Ukraine also initialized a process of um, getting all these uh, things that you are now talking about, the, the military stuff. Is, is that, um, so, so I, I have very much the political angle, as you can see, uh, or as you can hear. Um, but do you think that is a correct way to put it so that the political environment changed and then that enabled what then became the development of uh, armed of armed forces that was also way more um, ready to fight and so on. Yeah, can you just speak a bit about that and the re relation between these things and so on? Uh, yeah, sure. Or what you think at least? Well, what what I think is that we don't have to go back to 2014. We have to go back to the Soviet times, and 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 you know to see how the relationship between Ukraine and Russia evolved after the fall of the Soviet Union and how, let's say, the Baltic states, they took that chance to get away. And, and, and because Russia was at its weakest during that time and militarily, it wouldn't be able to do anything. So the Baltics took the chance to do that. Now with Ukraine, it was a little bit uh, different and uh, certain security relations remained, political relations remained. Ukraine's dependency on, on, on kind of Russian energy provision culturally, and that coming to the identity, you know, the, the, the younger generations of Ukrainians have a 
completely different mindset. So you have those Soviet kind of Russian speaking Ukrainians and many of them occupy high military ranks within the Ukrainian armed forces. And then kind of you have the younger ones, for instance, General Zeluzhny would be one of the younger ones who hasn't served in the Soviet army. And and so you, you have these developments and, and, and then you have kind of Russia trying to uh, basically influence politics because for Russia, Ukraine is a buffer. It's a near abroad. And, you know, going back and thinking about things that happened when the Baltics joined the U European Union, when the Baltics joined NATO, Russia was not in the position to do anything. They were disconcerted. They didn't say it publicly at that point. They were also, can I just say one thing here? And then you can just move on. Uh right after it was also a bit more like that um in the period um where they actually invaded crimea um i would say to a certain degree um because if you go back and watch the um the news from back then basically and the reports from the uh, meetings between putin poroshenko merkel and so on from back then you actually see that putin was in a way more defensive position with, with regards to how much he said to um, those uh, Western leaders, to that Ukrainian leader, and so on. And I just think that these things speaks volume to the fact that the position Russia are in versus us at any given point when a critical juncture is happening is very important as well. Well, I, I think um, even before that, the important point was um, Putin's Munich speech in 2007, where he was saying, yeah, you know, NATO is coming a way to close to the Russian borders. And the problem is that during the 90s, um, Gorbachev misunderstood the, the, the whole, uh, or at least it's argued there, there are different historical accounts of you know what was said during that meeting about you know, NATO's potential enlargement. And, and they were never promised anything. Yeah. They, he, went, he was never promised anything. So let, let me just say that, all right? I'm 100% sure he was never promised specifically or endlessly that if these nations democratically want to be a part of our uh, sphere of influence um, then we are not going to let them in that that was never said so that is an important political point as well well do you have any proof were you in the meeting I mean, I would be very careful making such statements because, like I said, there are different historical accounts. Okay, okay, that is, okay sure, sure, sure. Okay, so that, that, okay, as you say, nobody were ever in the meeting, yeah. right? So everybody can come up with their own theories. Uh, and my theory is that the leader uh, of the free world, so to say, that spoke with Gorbachev in that period, it, oh, it was the foreign... Um, Minister, actually, of um, the United States, uh, I believe, is the person that people are talking about. I'm almost 100% sure that he would have never been stupid enough to say something that would, like, to the end of time, um, make us accountable for having the Baltic nations in NATO. That, that Something like that could have never been said. They didn't say that, and they were not even talking about the Baltics. They were talking about Germany and German reunification, as a matter of fact, just to put it into context. Uh, so the the whole thing is that that's it's kind of the same thing well it, it's not quite the same thing because back then nobody mentioned the baltics but uh it, it was said in a very kind of tricky way as not to say we will not expand 
but not to say, you know, not to say it explicitly. And so if you read the original of the speech, it was a very, very nicely diplomatically crafted thing. So Gorbachev could then take whatever he wanted to take away from it on board. And so the, there was this um, room left for ambiguity for Gorbachev to interpret this because, uh, you know, they didn't want any possibility of kind of scaring Gorbachev off and saying, yeah, of course we will expand, we will expand to your borders. So it was a very kind of skillful act. And, and you know, I encourage you to go back and to kind of to, to read the original of the speech. It's quite fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. I, I will do that in the future. So um, going back to, 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 to kind of, you know, Russia was not in, in the position to do anything back then. They had kind of a lot of restructuring going on during kind of the Yeltsin years. And, you know, Yeltsin even agreed to withdraw the Soviet troops from, from the Baltics. So that, that, that was a co kind of a completely different story. And with the Ukraine, as I said, the kind of the younger generations, what did Ukraine do after the fall of the Soviet Union? They abolished kind of, the, they started removing Russian language from from education so they, they started kind of orienting themselves themselves more towards kind of creating or reviving their national identity you know teaching ukrainian history teaching ukrainian literature and so the younger generations they they, they have a completely different view of you know of of russia ukraine relations they don't have that soviet kind of nostalgia that stability which 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 ukraine had during the cold war and so we have kind of this situation coupled with um you know russia's influence in in kind of politics and 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 economics so that it was a very kind of not ideal relationship was which perpetuated a lot of internal issues such as corruption for instance um and so Ukrainians are different in terms of, you know, they, they are very, very, very close to Russians in terms of their strategic culture. But there is one differentiating point, and, 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 you know, like you said in the very beginning, they don't like to tolerate things. So they're not afraid to go out on the streets and protest. And that's essentially what happened during the Maidan in, in 2014. They, because there are polls. Just to uh, mm -hmm. say, it all, it already started in 2013, yeah. actually, with the, uh, it was a series of, of events, and then there was, this is how I like to uh, remember it, uh, at least, because I really love this quote, it all, and it also um, says a lot about what I'm doing as well, um, because there was a um, student protest, uh, 100 people or something against uh, Yanukovych at the time. Then he decided to crack down on, on them uh, violently. Um, I think actually, um, and, and th this is not true um, in an academic way or factual way, um, but I think you can say that the war already started there. Well, when these protests, it... when these protesters were violently um, crack down on that was the forces that eventually, in, in to a certain degree, uh, at least. But but yeah, then it, of course it developed in two thousand and uh, twenty fourteen in the in the spring, which is the story a lot of people know. So the first cracks were actually during the Orange Revolution and what you know in, in Ukraine. So that 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 was kind of the the very very beginning, if we want to be uh, precise here. Oh, well, but if we want to say the very, very beginning, we have to go back to the, yeah, I don't know, you tell me the year 
when Russian suppression of uh, Ukraine started? Well, what, what I'm trying to say is that I'm looking at the relationship after the fall of the Soviet Union and how this evolved, because this is the, the we, we, we can also go back to 1800 and Chechen wars, but that's not going. Sure, sure, sure. Can I just say, but that, that's just why I, that's, that is exactly that point about you can always go back and back and back and back. It's why I like to say that it, you can say that it was with the violent suppression of these protesters, um, because that at least is what I think um, is the conflict that developed into the war that we have right now. I know about the Orange Revolution um, as well, of course, um, but they still had a sus- substa- substantial period of something you can say was not warlike conditions um, or war, actually. And the, 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 there was violence from these protesters was cracked down and then until today. Actually. Well, if you allow me to make my point, maybe you will see why I'm mentioning the Orange Revolution. And, and uh, the point here is the way that Ukrainian relationship with Russian evolved after the fall of the Soviet Union and how it continued and where it started seeing the first cracks and the first cracks were during the Orange Revolution. Of course, the 2014, that 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 was a key moment that was a catalyst for the beginning of the war. Why I'm mentioning the Orange Revolution, because you would remember that, you know, that was a time of what Russia calls color revolutions. Right. So the, the, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Why is this is important? That is a time when Russia starts saying, hang on a second, this NATO. Right. And just in 1999, um, uh, Russia was deploying its forces to Kosovo to, to work together with NATO. And now we're in beginning of 2000s, Russia is shifting away and is starting to see NATO as a threat actor. So this is that is why this this period important, because the threat perception from the Russian perspective changes. And that's when they're start, starting to say NATO is sponsoring those color revolutions. Uh, so that's that's when they start to change the rhetoric as well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I, I'm. Um, you you were saying that you wanted to um, make your point, and, and it's completely fine if you just sometimes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cut me off. A no, no, bit no because, worries. I, uh, I was just trying to, you, you know, because you you couldn't see where I'm going with this orange revolution mm, thing, mm. And, and so I I wanted to kind of to close the circle so that it's you know you can see Ukrainian side and how they think about it, but you also can see where Russia is starting mm. to move away from the West, whereas they are starting to and, get suspicious. True, and and that is also I think that is a lesson in itself to me. Um, that whenever I speak about people, uh, no, whenever whenever I speak with people about these subjects, um, and it is people like you um, who, base we the two of us, we agree, I think, um, on most things. Um, and I just think that I, since I'm more political, um, I will sometimes <laughs> go a bit um, further uh, and and say things a bit more directly um, because I also uh, like to. Um, participate in the realm of changing opinions and by changing hearts and minds. And, um, and that's, I at least think uh, sometimes um, demands 
that you actively call people out um, and so on, and that you cut straight to the point sometimes. Um, but but I think now, Marina, uh, we have to move on because I sent you the template for the conversation, yeah. and and you said uh, so. You said it's good that you send me the talking points because I tend to uh, speak uh, longer than I can. And then I said, yes, and I'm sending you these uh, templates because I have the same tendency. Well, I trust you to, to keep the schedule. You know, I'm not looking at the clock, so it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> oh, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, it's Friday afternoon, exactly. And um, it's great that we can have a relaxed conversation uh, as well. But, but and, and I, I wrote this um, because now, now we will start from what the template suggested we should be talking about. But I think we have already talked about a lot of the things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I'm not going to uh, present the template because then that would also take uh, too much time. So to the listeners, um, if anybody wants to start doing something like this themselves, um, this following what I, for example, is, is doing here um, could could be um, an advice or something like that. Yeah. Um, But I was just thinking about uh, it, and do you know the meme about uh, Vladimir Lenin? I'm not. It, uh, I promise I won't get political. Which one is that? Uh, this was a meme when I was uh, in when I when I began to um, be politically active in like the start of my high school, and, and we saw this meme. The friends also uh, of my class, and it's about. Uh, it, so it says. First, it's a picture of someone who is just, it could basically be a picture of anyone, someone who's just sitting with a beer and saying, I promise I won't get political tonight. And then it, it goes like four hours after, and then you see this picture of Lenin just, you know, doing what Lenin did uh, back then. So that's <laughs> like, uh, I think a little bit that that is uh, who I am as a person. And because I've actually been out of party politics for a lot of years and, mm -hmm. and didn't really want to... Um, be too active because I also wanted to um, just do other stuff, um, travel and so on. But with the Ukraine war, I'm back. Um, and this is not ending until Ukraine has de facto won um, back all its territory and is not um, anymore under threat from Russia. And uh, I don't know how we are going to get there, but we, we are at some point. Um, yeah, so so that is, that is a bit of, about me as a person uh, as well. And maybe also to the listeners, because this is one of the first episodes. Um, but yeah, to go on from okay, here. Okay, so um, yeah. what's the next point? But the next point is, um, I think um, we have to talk a bit about academic discourse um, surrounding um, these subjects. And um, I think, I think actually, I I'll just give the word to you here, um, because you, you, I'm just someone who studies uh, Mm -hmm. these things and i did my bachelor on the war in ukraine i wrote my biggest assignment back in 2015 in high school about the maidan and revolution of dignity i think a lot of a lot of my passion about this actually um goes back to that understanding of what ukrainians are fighting for um and it is a point itself for me also to talk so much about eastern europe because maybe then other people will also understand that feeling, that struggle, and then um, participate a bit more in it themselves. Um, yeah, but but let's talk a bit about how we got in contact, actually, um, because I think that is a little bit interesting, um, because 
some listeners will maybe think, how did you just um, randomly uh, connect to uh, a military analytic from King's London, uh, King's um, College, yeah. right? In London. Is, yeah, is yeah, that correct? yeah, that's correct. Yeah, sure, uh, sure, sure. Because, uh, I, and also my my um, friends who I'm studying with, they would probably not label me as someone who is very studious, uh, and that 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 comes back to my political uh, engagement and so on. But I am very studious about Ukraine and about history and about all these things. I think that is pretty clear as well. Um, yeah. So can, can you just um, talk a bit about how we got in contact and maybe also why you said yes? Oh, well, um, I believe that you have emailed me uh, because you had seen one of my interviews or one of my contributions. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Was it um, TW, uh, so Deutsche Welle? I've seen many. Or, uh, something, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know because I, I've been trying to kind of invest my own time into this and, and trying to kind of to contribute because um, I, I should have said that in the beginning. I can... Um, read and understand Ukrainian fluently and Russian as well. So when I study this topic, I can look at both sites and both sources. Um, should be said that a lot of kind of Ukrainian sources uh, are in Russian anyway. So that kind of gives me an unique insight to be able to kind of use my theoretical knowledge and also analyze like different telegram channels and you know whatever is put out there as well as well as official discourse so i always kind of feel um tempted to contribute because you know there are so many sources and so much information right now it's very very difficult for for anyone to kind of uh, create a balanced view of what is going on so i i'm i'm kind of i have colleagues working on other portions of this i'm working on my particular portion so i, I can contribute from my side with a little bit of information what i can access and so I, i've been um trying to kind of um give interviews and and so um it, it's kind of my way of, of of contributing to the whole thing to do it in my spare time on weekends and, you know, go and read about this topic and, you know, watch videos, watch interviews, um, uh, obviously, and, and, you know, talk to people, talk to journalists. And so when, when you when you contacted me, it's not like, oh, it's not BBC, it's not, you know, CNN. So uh, who, who are you? I'm not going to talk to you. No, no, no. I thought, okay, you know, if somebody is interested in the topic, I'm happy to share my knowledge because I'm 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 passionate about it, and if I can contribute to you learning maybe something new, then I, I'm I'm happy to invest the time and do so, and that's the reason uh, why I replied and why I agreed, because you know I, I get emails from from people uh, you know asking me questions, those who see me in interviews, and it takes time, but I I do want to uh, try and answer every one of them because you know. You have only three minutes to 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 talk about questions which no, would normally take an hour. So, uh, what I'm trying to do is kind of to explain the background. Why why am I saying this? Because often when you watch the interviews, I make a statement, but it doesn't quite mm, like like in this case when I was talking about the Orange Revolution. What is the background to it? What is a logical connector? Why why am I saying this? So I'm trying to kind of spend as much time engaging with people and trying to explain you know where where, where i'm coming from with this uh, particular opinion of you sure and um i think that's um a, the point you are um putting to why you said yes is something that i think that um everyone in the field 
of um, academics should maybe um, also um, try to follow. It's not like you have to do this. Um, I have a tendency sometimes as well to to be a bit like uh, telling people uh, what to do sometimes. And that is also goes back to the political uh, nature of, um, of who I am, um, trying to get other people actively invested in in things I think are um are important um and stuff like that. But but yeah, but it's just because the the fact that you said yes um maybe also will enable me to speak with other people um like you. Um so so that's just very nice. And I already spoke with a Danish military expert, as I've already said, um who I think actually has many of the same um, perspectives as you are. He's also very focused on the history, um, and he's um, also trying to analyze this in in a bit in, in the larger picture than just the uh, military, um, the concrete military stuff, which is of course very important. And so, in that way, it is also very good for me to be able to speak with you and with him um, because. I speak of these things with a credibility um, that um, is based upon whether or not people uh, politically agree with me, because at, at least all the Danish listeners, because those are my friends and the people I know uh, so far at least, and they they all know who I am uh, and how political I am. Um, and so, so it's great to to have people like you st- uh, saying things also, so that they also learn something new. Also, while I am learning something new, um, so in that way, it is also this process I was talking about earlier about learning more about Eastern Europe um, yeah. and so on. Well, it's, um, it's so, like a Hegelian uh, dialectical process. You know, you throw things at me, I throw things at you. You know, we both end up benefiting from this because we we come out with new insights. And you know, I, I'm not political in the sense that you are because academics uh would be neutral so even you know in our professional publications we have to avoid let's say politically laden words and and language and i have encountered that when i was talking about the soviet union in one of my chapters about wagner and and so i had to be very very careful and it was before uh, the war in ukraine I, I, you know in terms of which words i use because i myself i, I didn't realize that they were so politically laden and then the editor came back to me and said well it's actually not the fall of the soviet union it's a dissolution of the soviet union and so i was surprised and i said well it has changed now but you know the point being is that we have to be very, very careful as academics. Um, that is why I'm not going into politics saying, oh, Zelensky's right, Putin is wrong, or the other way around, or, you know, I'm not a politician. I don't want to be in their shoes. I don't want to be in Putin's shoes, and I don't want to be in Zelensky's shoes. And, you know, I'm glad <laughs> that... Can I, can I speak yeah. a bit to this point? Um, because I think it's a very... Um, because I, Okay, so... <coughs> oh, sorry. I had an interview. Oh, no, I had a conversation with Daria mm-hmm. from um, Ukraine, and we spoke for I don't know. I think we all we were we spoke for around three hours. I think mm-hmm. recorded around two and a half hours. And the great thing about doing interviews with her, for example, is that I can also give her a platform um, to tell her story and um, to convey the feelings that she 
is um, having about, and it is difficult to talk about, but her parents is still in occupied um, ter- territory of Ukraine, mm-hmm. just 10 kilometers um, southwest, it must be, of um, liberated Kherson today. And right now she cannot get into contact with her uh, parents. They, um, how was it? Yeah, so so her brother is in Odessa and her parents and her grandparents are in, um, yeah, in uh, in temporarily occupied uh, mm-hmm. territory. And it's just so, um, how can you say it? When you hear these stories, it's- Heartbreaking. It's it's heartbreaking and it is re, uh, it is, so some, some of my friends, maybe I think um, they, they think a little bit like, what, why is it that you spend so much time on doing this stuff? Um, and why don't you try to get a job instead um, or um, use more time to um, study or something like that? And when when I hear the story of Daria, for example, it just um, all these feelings that I could maybe have about spending my time doing something else they just they just go away um and not just do they go away they they my feeling is feelings are also sort of changed Mm -hmm. in a in a certain way where as the things she is saying is also um conveying to me that i have to do some things differently and so on i have to be more positive first of all about western unity um and about the politically active communities in Denmark also doing stuff for Ukraine. Um, but but my um, what really frustrates me is that it is so impossible to um, really get people to actively engage in, for example, grassroots, grassroots movements, working for more weapon support to Ukraine because... And, and two things goes... Okay, we uh, it's about the it's still about the uh, academic discourse right now um, in my field, mm-hmm. which is political science, um, which is one of the fields I think that it that has turned a bit to the left, I suppose you could say. Just like that, it it has turned a little bit to the left um, in its overall discourse um, concerning every single subject. Um, it doesn't matter what you talk about; the way you say it will sound a little bit like uh, the way that the politicians that tends to be a little m- bit more the left will say it um yeah so that's i think it's like that um and and the problem is that when you then try to do activism mm-hmm. um political activism um the environment in which you do the political activism um about for example sending more weapons to ukraine uh, is more difficult um, because, and this goes back to the point I was also having about why I don't want to call this a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I said that yeah. before the recording or after, but, but so, um, yeah, I was disconnected. It's connected like this. So the things they are hearing in the podcast mm-hmm. that most of these people hear is something, um, that either only, um, promotes activism in, for example, um, Black Lives Matter or um, climate activism or um, some other progressive stuff you can do on the left. Um, or, or it could also be very uh, far right, which is uh, not such a problem in Denmark, but a huge problem in the United States. Um, it, it's not it's not the same things because I don't think Black Lives Matter is a democratic threat to the United States, but I think 
Black Lives Matter is taking away focus from political activism that could otherwise have maybe um, taken the United States more in the direction of sending more weapons to um, Ukraine. This this goes for the everywhere in Europe. But but the problem is that when the environment is like that, and when the podcast they listen to, um, sort of um, how can you how can you put it? They inflict you with certain feelings about what it means to send weapons to Ukraine. Because the discourse in a lot of these things is like war is bad. Um, or it is like you have to view it from both sides. Or it is like Mearsheimer or someone like that. Um, and and I don't care. I, I can I can say whatever I want about Mearsheimer. I'm just 26 years old. I'm just studying these things. I don't have a huge following. He's, he's so uh, much above me in the hierarchy. Um, I also think that is one of my um, gifts right now um, that I can do these things. But but I think that he's a seven idiot. Um, I think he knows a lot of things, but I think he doesn't know anything about reality. Um, yeah, so that is just um, one of the things that I would like to say. And I, now it gets a bit long, but that's how it is uh, with me. Um, but I think the problem is mm-hmm. that when Mearsheimer, for example, says that it is all about geopolitics, it is all about a um, grand power struggle for... Um, spheres of interest when Mearsheimer says that that enables politicians on the left or on the right it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, and political um, thinkers um, and political activists um, in western countries to allude to what Mearsheimer is saying so they go ah, but I can say this because I just believe that USA is as bad as Russia and then they they, they don't even realize if it's if it is people on the is oh, this is getting so long um but if it is people on the left who is um referring to that it is all about geopolitics they don't even realize that the person mm-hmm. who said these things that they are referring to is coming from a point that they would agree a lot no would disagree a lot with in the past basically for all of their political past they would have disagreed with that guy and now he suddenly uh, is providing uh, the framework of which you can say yeah. these things in a theoretical and academically neutral, so to say, way. And I just think that's interesting because it, it's, it shows so much about Russian propaganda, I think. Well, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure it was a Mersheimer supported by Russia, uh, but um, that being said, in Russian tradition no but he was on he was on ccp uh communist tv in china well of course uh, so is Tucker carlson so is scott ritter and you know you see those guys on on russian tv uh I, I, one of my newsweek interviews has been translated into russian and was published in their military affairs so i i you know i have no control over what what they pick up but uh the uh, the problem here is is that for russia can I, I let me just please because the point about him being uh, on Chinese communist TV is not that he said something and then he was and then that was um, referred to on there. He actively participated in an interview in Chinese communist okay. TV uh, propaganda channel where he public publicly stated that this was not an imperialistic war of. Russia. Well, I have no knowledge of his interview, so I'm I'm not going to comment on that. What I want to say is that Russia and geopolitics, and you know, and Mersheimer aside, um, Mackinder, 
you know, and his heartland theory. That that's the kind of the the the, the idea that was um, developed further by the likes of Alexander Dugin, um, then the the um, defense minister. He was during the 90s, Primakov, the so-called Primakov doctrine, and so these ideas have been developed and enacted and um, they they have been kind of uh, they they've been pushing putin back then because putin back then was um, oriented towards the west and so he saw that you know looking at the west and participating in in kind of western institutions would benefit russia because russia you remember 1998 it, it was economic well, i was only uh, two years old back and, then so. and so he wanted well I, I mean not remember but you might have read that you know that russia at that point was absolutely destroyed economically and so for putin it was important to to look to the west and to participate in international uh, institutions so that russia could learn from western experience and could then you know get the country up and 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 you know benefit from it so essentially he was looking to benefit from the west and so and at the same time these people like dugin in 1999 they were there and primakov as well saying no 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 the cold war paradigm is not that it's it's gonna stick with us for 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 the rest of of russia's existence probably and we have to look to the east we have to look at Asia, and that's that's where our true geopolitical interests should lie. And so these have been the people who kind of set the agenda. They they were there, kind of whispering, "Okay, he, this is the way to go. This is the way to go." And so you have that on the one side. That then you have things like the color revolutions, which you know that, that that's a Russian term to describe it. And so Putin started kind of moving away his foreign policy from 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 the from the West, and you know started kind of becoming very very suspicious. Hence, what we're seeing right now was Putin Xi Jinping, and you know Putin's turn to look at look at Russia India relations. So I think to a certain degree, there is this geopolitical struggle, there is this tectonic shift when it comes to 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 power balance in 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 international relations that is happening. And this is again one of the tools within the broader information wars that Russia is trying to exploit, namely to convince those countries of of the righteousness of its cause to win allegiance. You know, either it's through diplomacy or through natural resources or through kind of military deliveries. For instance, in Syria, it showcased a lot of its weaponry that it developed in order to secure long-term contracts. And a long-term contract like that, like with Turkey for the S-400 for the air defense system, that's a long-term relationship because they have to maintain it. They have to, you know, provide spare parts and so on and so forth. It's not just like you sell it and, and it's over. So it's a long-term relationship. And, and so it, it is interesting. So we have to also look at how Russia is trying to use non-military means. And that's what Gerasimov was saying, summing up what has been said by the likes of Igor Panarin during the, the 90s that you, you know dominating this kind of information spectrum and trying to create favorable conditions for russia not in the west because in the west it, it, the russians themselves are saying in the west they have kind of failed but 
doesn't matter. We'll go to South Africa. We'll, we'll go to we'll go to Mali. We'll go to India. We'll go to Sri Lanka, Middle East, Saudi Arabia. I mean, Iran again, North Korea. You name it. So it it, it is kind of interesting, and that's the way of kind of the the way Russians see it as a chessboard. Imagine the outrage if U.S. intervened like Russia in Mali. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And and the 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 idea for for the Russians is um they learned from the second uh, uh, from the first um, Gulf War and they said aha you don't actually need that much force first things first you create an um, um, an informational dominance internationally and basically internally where, where you're trying to intervene and then you can use kind of high precision weapons you, you rely on air power with a very very small logistical footprint with um, that's what they essentially did in Syria. They barely used any ground forces of their own. They delegated the tasks to 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 Assad or to Assad's army and the Kurds. And so uh, that that that's that's kind of the idea shaping the information uh, informational battlefield. And so now we're kind of seeing Ukraine and seeing hmm, things have gone quite not as planned ironically because there is nobody better to understand the ukrainian strategic culture than the russians because they they all were a part of the soviet union so that that kind of miscalculation is very very surprising and you know as i said before uh, i have uh, written on this with my colleague on on kind of intelligence failure and you know how how the russian intelligence specifically the fsb presented a picture that kind of Putin wanted to to see rather than, you know, what, what the reality on the ground was. Yeah, so that was um, <clears throat> the last thing you talked about was the information that Putin were given from his um, yeah closest um, partners, you could basically say in his kleptocracy, I think. Um, and not, now let's, um, let, let's try to move a bit on now in a more structured um way and it, it is no mm -hmm. it is no means because i i don't think uh, that we haven't had a good conversation so far it has been per it has been per no no but but exactly we, we have up. to set time limits for the for the listeners as well it's difficult yeah. to, to, to and sit uh, about, there, you about know, the and listeners actually because i have this concept where i tell my listeners to write to me privately and rate my oh sorry and rate my conversations on a scale from one to 10. Um, and I came up with this um, practice while I was speaking with Daria. And then, and then I, I mm -hmm. told somebody about it. And, um, and, and, I, and when I was, this is going to sound a bit uh, funny, but when I was um, telling the people, uh, telling this to people, uh, I realized, so what I came up with was, um, Like uh, how what is it in English? Uh, recommendations basically just so what what I thought was so mm -hmm. uh, brilliant is just what iTunes does for you uh, in advance, anyways. Um, but yeah, the point here is that I really want people to write to me personally um, and rate my conversation on a scale from uh, one to ten. And uh, one of my friends mm -hmm. did this already after he heard about the concept where he said, and this is about um, a conversation I had with a Danish politician from the same party as mm -hmm. me, um, with the same convictions as me. 
Uh, so we were agreeing a lot and it became very political. Um, so if you think I've been political here, then <laughs> it, it can go way further. But he said, he basically wrote to me, I will give you a conversation at 10, nine for the general content um, and structure and um, like quality of what you're talking about. Uh, but 10 for the fact that you um, don't care about criticizing the far left in a way uh, which is not just uh, the normal <laughs> critic they are getting, but in a way which um, <laughs> ideologically in a very um, convincing way uh, suggests why you're saying these things. So that is one example of um, mm -hmm. yeah uh, of the things that I would like to read from my listeners. It could also be you get one because um, you cannot stop talking about uh, the left in this interview. So it can be it can be like that, yeah. Uh, so that was just uh, I, ha I have to keep mentioning these things here in the beginning so that so that the listeners yeah. uh, don't forget. Oh, uh, yeah. So that also goes back to the thing. I it is a podcast, but it is all it is mainly a conversation series. Um, oh, anyways. So what what I wanted to get back to, Marina was some of the things you said in the beginning mm -hmm. about informational warfare, um, because I think that is very important. It is very, very, very important that we understand that in 2023, international politics is about informational warfare and about um, which policy uh, we choose to um, yeah, to pursue in um, in these questions. And um, I, I can, can I, because... I have a theory about when informational warfare mm -hmm. um, started, um, and, and now it is also about the academic discourse. But um, that's that's mm -hmm. um, so back in the eighties, um, or basically when Ronald Reagan was running uh, to become American president. So mm -hmm. during the seventies, and I believe the informational warfare was always there. Um, we just didn't really participate in it um, before. What I'm going to say, um, but then. Reagan came along and he was just this whole new character in um, in what was a pretty frozen um, Cold War at the time. And he and he um, started saying things you may didn't uh, hear before. And he uh, now it's going to be a bit about the left as well. Um, but what, what he did was that he said in Europe, we should have the same missile systems um, pointed against the USSR uh, as the ones that they have pointed against um, European cities. And not only did he say that it should be the same, he, he actually um, made it so that our defense would be even stronger uh, or our attack would be even stronger. And while he was doing that, he was also um, engaging himself in the informational warfare battle um, by mm. Mr. Gorbachev uh, tear down this wall. That's the greatest example uh, of that. Um, but I, I just want to say that nobody liked Reagan for saying that uh, in, at, the, at the time, like, or at least the general discourse in the public debate was actually against Reagan um, when he said a lot of these things. Um, and and that's because he was the one that had to open uh, the, um, the informational warfare Uh, from our part, because I believe that the USSR was already was always um, engaging in informational warfare. So, so, so were we, of course, just by the way of being. Um, but, but of course, they were um, 
like more concretely actively political but then ronald reagan opened all that and and now today it is just even more open um and it is even more freely to participate and it is actually pretty easy to participate as well you just have to write sometimes on twitter to pro-russian idiots um that they are idiots um i think at least um if it is extreme extremely pro-russian so that if they they talk shit about ukrainians or something i think you have to um write some things to them that um mentals with their conscious um because i think that is sometimes the way that you can change hearts and minds uh so that's a that's just a part of the informational warfare um on a concrete like twitter discussion scale for example um in a social sphere it is very much also informational warfare because you have to tell your friends what the russians are doing if someone says i support ukraine then ask why do you support ukraine then they say why they support ukraine and then then you can ask ah okay so should we maybe do more to support ukraine um that's how i like to view the social sphere at least um Yeah, can you say something now? It's getting uh Yeah, 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 yeah. Just just a few points because I I'm afraid I'll have to run soon, but um uh, you're absolutely correct and it's interesting that you're talking about uh, Ronald Dragon. Uh he he's a kind of the ideal guy for this kind of stuff because he was an actor, so he has a necessary skill or had a necessary skill for this, but as you said, uh, it's been going on for ages. I mean, if we go back to ancient Greece and so on, it has always existed, but it has evolved over time. You know, Sun Tzu said, you know, deception. So that plays again into this information warfare where where you deceive your enemy. And, and you know, of course, it's about the military, but Sun Tzu is read by everybody, including the military. And so it has always existed manipulation of information and, you know, informational superiority. But uh, back in the day, it was much easier for the state to manipulate information if they had to, because they could influence printed press and so on and so forth, you know. And, and now with the advent of Internet, that's where things get funny, because, you know, you can uh, penetrate space and time and, you know, target your messages. You have you can use analytics to see who is watching which channels and who's reading what. And then you, you can craft your information campaign j just like marketing. You can craft your information campaign and uh, to to reach the users because the Russians will say, well, Emil will not buy this because there, there is no no way we we are going to waste this specific piece of information on him, but he's going to buy something else, and and, and so it's Maybe crafted I, I in such a way that you wouldn't, yeah. So it's crafted in such a way that you would think, hmm, you know. And then, you know, we have all the trolls, we have artificial intelligence, you know, uh, chat GPT and the problems it caused. And, you know, th this is becoming very, very scary. And I think, you know, Russia aside and, you know, j just generally how how complex the information spectrum has become and overcrowded, it making it very, very difficult for people to believe one thing or another. And I remember before studying, we had to do critical thinking um, 
exercises, you know, analyze the news and, you know, from different sources and say, okay, what, what, what is it all about? And so I, I think right now what, what is happening is that somehow the scale is getting lost. And, and I think uh, regardless of whether we're talking about Ukraine or, or any other issue, what is important is to, to be able to triangulate information and to, to not just take the time to look at the actual sources, but also to, to basically analyze it and just, not take it, it at so, face value. It is, it, is, it is just so difficult um, for people um, at, at my age and people who, who are younger because we, we live in a time where what we grew up with was just this um, tendency of having social media on speed, basically. Um, and and uh, I, actually, I think it, it it's such a difficult problem to um, to get out of because it it's and we we will um, yeah yeah wrap this wrap this up soon. But but uh, I just want to say on behalf of me and and my generation and people who are younger than me that you have to step out of the um, pseudo um, informational space, which is um, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Also, Twitter, uh, TikTok, all these things. If you don't use them, in an, um, I would say, yeah, uh, source critical way. Yeah, yeah. Go on. No, no, absolutely. And this is, you know, the, it's a double-edged sword. How you can exploit those tools because you know, uh, many people get hooked on the likes of Facebook or, or or Instagram and so on and so forth. And and then you get cases like you know the Russian hackers defacing Valery Zelushny's uh, Instagram account. Even you know from operational security perspective, it's a very very bad idea to be on 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 those kinds of things. Aside from the kind of information that might be conveyed there, and the problem is that you know people reposting stuff without even double guessing it and saying okay you know i've seen that i repost it so somebody who knows me says okay marina uh, i know her she's legit so i'm going to repost it and, and so we actively without knowing participate in this kind of misinformation and the, uh, increasing the flow so increasing essentially the noise uh, the background noise which makes it very, very difficult to 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 distinguish reality. It is from it is fiction. so difficult to um, distinguish reality from um, yeah from fiction in these times in these political times. Um, I I at least think and and maybe so me me and my friends for example. Um, so we are we are at the end of the and, and this is just to broaden it a bit as well because this is a subject that goes down to every single aspect of human life. I think. Um, we we are a part of the millennial generation, like in the end of the millennial generation, and I think we are lucky enough to to still have been brought up with um, not values, but just an environment in which um, the people who were politically um, raising you um, were not um, rabbit holes on Facebook. Um, about why it is okay to almost hit women um, if you are someone who watches a lot of Andrew Tate um, or about rabbit holes um, which will end up with you having a conviction that 2 plus 2 is not 4 anymore um, it, it's just these sorts of and uh, 
can I ask you a question about this? And the, so I will ask you a question now, and then um, let me just see here because mm -hmm. yeah, I also have plans. Uh, <laughs> it's Friday. Uh, yeah, I'm still young. Uh, that's what enables me to speak a bit more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'll ask you a question now about this, and then we will um, talk. You can talk briefly about Brit British yeah. uh, responsibility. Wrap it and up. Then we will see how much other time we have. Uh, yeah. So it's about mm -hmm. this um, informational. Um, warfare right when people falls into these traps of ending up thinking that two plus two is not four or that um the 9-11 was an inside job or that um you know all, all these things that are either completely screwed or is ideologically and epistemologically and ontologically screwed in a sort of a modern reflectionism on speed do, do you know what i mean Do you, how much do you think? How much of that do you think is active yeah. Russian propaganda, and how much do you think is just people sort of making these things up themselves in the West, and then we end up there, and then yeah. I I think you know you you have a, certainly a portion of you know what the Russians are doing, but I'd like to quote Mike Mazara from Rand. He said, "Russians don't even need to invent stuff. We are already doing the work for them, and and you know create creating things." So basically it's impossible to to notice the the russian um participation but i i think generally it's both you have both things yeah Just the one the thing is also is creating to um the other uh so it goes like that of course yeah it's perpetuating because you know russians can can right. um, benefit from two yes, plus two you, but, but doesn't equal four We, okay, you don't have that much time. Okay, I'll just make one more point here uh, about it because because I I believe that a lot of people they they say um, mm -hmm. oh but we know that is Russian uh, propaganda, and then in the same sentence they say something that is Russian propaganda without they re without them realizing it and that is just so funny. Um, maybe and sometimes even saying this is Russian propaganda to um, get out of a, a, a discussion about it. Can also be Russian. It works on all. It works on all levels. Um, yeah, I, I see. I see exactly exactly what you're saying there. And this is a classical reflexive control situation where the person saying it is Russian propaganda and saying then something, you know, right, playing right into into kind of Russia's hands without actually realizing it. And, and it, you it know, is, it's it is, it's a very exactly, interesting just, field of study in psychology. Uh, thing to comprehend because it works on all these levels. Um, so, yeah, it's just because uh, I've decided to, in every episode I do, I will convey uh, a value that I think people have to bring with them with regards to Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And this time, because we've just talked about this, it, it will be um, if you engage in the uh, pol active political um, opinionating um, debates and this uh, course, please be aware of the fact that everyone who is writing something, um, and this goes also to mainstream media, um, but it goes more, of course, to when you are on Twitter or in these rabbit holes, um, Be aware of the fact that people don't always have pos positive intentions. Um, people don't uh, always create a podcast because they they uh, want to do something that is good or because they believe the messages that they are conveying in the podcast. Maybe they just created the podcast because some uh, Russian banker uh, was told to um, 
create some Russian propaganda in the West. Um, that, that, that is a very extreme uh, case, um, right? But I think that happens with Twitter users, for example. Um, and if you listen to uh, other podcasts, for example, um, also be aware, especially if they are on the extreme right or on the extreme left, um, just, just be aware of where they are coming from. And if that is a position that you would like to come from yourself. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I don't think that I've really strongly enough conveyed it, um, but, but it, is, it is this thing about, actually it is just about using your personal integrity when you um, activate and participate, activate yourself and when you participate in anything that is related to um, forming public opinion and also your own opinion um, because otherwise you will just end up having it formed by others. Um, and it, it is not to say that, so me and I, we are a great example of this. We talk with each other, we challenge each other and we get smarter um, and we allow ourselves always to get smarter, but we are also doing it based on some pretty strong convictions about what freedom is, I think. Um, and and that is it's just these convictions as well that you have to bring in or the convictions are the solution to you not falling into these traps. Um, and just one, one more last thing about this is, is because I've watched uh, hundreds hours, at least I think since the war started, of Timothy Snyder videos, for example. You can call that a rabbit hole if you want to. Then I just call it a, a rabbit hole where you learn about how to, how to defend freedom and how to um, stand up to tyranny. And, and that's what I'm doing. That's what um, the Ukrainians that are on the show is doing. That is what my producer, who doesn't know that much about politics, is doing. But, but, but we all have these convictions. Uh, and that's why we're doing it. And that's why we don't get things wrong all the time. And that's why we um, get our facts straight, um, all, all these sorts of things. So yeah, that will just be my message um, today. If you are to engage in anything that relates to information, um, please be aware of the things that I'm saying. Be aware of where people are coming from and be aware of what their motivations might be. Do, do, you, have a, a, do you have something you want to say yourself about um, this or a comment to it? Well, I, I just wanted to, you, you've made a brilliant closing statement and unfortunately I, I believe both of us have to go now and... Uh, what I wanted to say is that um, I admire people who are investing time into this and, 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 and who actually, you know, you said about rabbit holes, everybody, you know, is free to choose their own rabbit hole. We're not forced to that. So I guess both of us have chosen ours. We're watching information on the conflict and trying to get, you know, to get the most out of it. And, and, you know, personally, if, if that, benefits you and increases the the overall knowledge then i i think it's all right i mean generally speaking we have always to be very careful you know there is no such thing as peer-reviewed stuff on ukraine right now i i really want to uh it's because also it's in the end so i i think it's okay i talk a bit more um but but so when i am in this rabbit hole for example with timothy snyder then at some point i see one of his lessons and then it is establish a private life for example, um, and, and I have a private life. It's not like that, um, but that also then corrects my path a little bit, I think, because, oh, here's a, here's a, a voice really uh, fighting for freedom, I believe.
But then he also conveys to me this message that get away from these videos, uh, yeah. go out, play football or something like that, you know? So yeah, I was just to talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, I think uh, consistency is a key, you know? Uh, there is nothing that is going to, to kill you, so to say, even in, in certain amounts, um, uh, poison, snake poison can be beneficial, but again, you have to find the balance and, and, and that's kind of the, the important thing. That being said, I'm very, very grateful for you um, to have for having invited me to this podcast and I really really enjoyed the conversation and I, unfortunately I'll have to um, wrap it up now but can I, I, can I ask you one I'm thing then I'm happy to talk to you again sure uh, let's hmm? do that in the future I think what I will be doing is um, sort of trying to get as many conversations as I can do and I want to do as, as many as possible with um, regular or politically active Eastern Europeans especially Ukrainians that that mm -hmm. is the um, point of the series um not, not, not to uh, say this conversation doesn't, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, the yeah, point no, is no, to no tell worries. their story. I and got then, it. And then, and then the conversations I have with you and with um, the other military analytic is like uh, also providing a theoretical framework for my listeners to also understand mm -hmm. these things uh, and for myself as well. Um, but, um, and I am so grateful that you uh, wanted to do this conversation with me. And I just want to um, say that um so there's no um how can you say it doubts about um my gratitude for people um, actively participating in this um course but i have one last question all right yeah uh, and that is something that i have decided to do all these times and it is that you need to give me an advice um that i can take with me from here on because I'm speaking to uh, you, pretty credible expert. Maybe I will speak to someone who is even more famous or something like that. And and I just don't want to. Um, I want to. Get okay, in terms of you know how to do, to to design the podcast or what what I think is interesting, it's not a usual format where you know I've been on other podcasts where you kind of go through different points here, one, two, three, four, and cut right so it's more of a, a, a conversation style podcast which i certainly appreciate and it's interesting because it makes it much more authentic and you know you, you interrupt me and you just say something rather than sticking with a script you're much more flexible i think uh, the only thing i would say is um maybe um to put like an uh, an exact time frame so that you know so that you, you still kind of it's still free but so that your guest and i'm talking about myself as well mea culpa uh, so that you guests kind of signal okay wrap it up we get, get to the next point so that the listeners can benefit and and you know kind of follow a, a, like a little bit of structure so it's not completely deconstructed so that that would be my my advice but it you know it takes practice and it takes also um it depends on, on the person you're talking to if somebody's very kind of emotional talking about the experience you know because their parents are in ukraine and so it, it's very difficult so th that is something that you you will get the more you do it but i, I think you're doing a great job and you know especially you know con contacting people saying okay you know I, I i might not be your bbc correspondent but you know i'm doing here something for for the people and for the cause that i believe in and i think it, that that's kind of the laudable approach so just keep 
keep doing what you're doing, you know, and, and the most important thing is that you're passionate about it. Mm, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, definitely a thing that I will take with me um, going forward. And um, to anybody out there like you, um, maybe I'm not the BBC expert, but um, maybe I got what would happen in the beginning of the war more right than the BBC expert. And it is not to be arrogant or anything. It is just to say that the knowledge you have about Ukraine um, mm -hmm. at any given point concerning something that is going to happen in Ukraine is going to influence how well you will end up predicting what will happen in Ukraine. And, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it was just yeah sure but we can uh, but we can the, wrap up the, now if you want to yeah sorry just one last point the, comparing you to bbc was not in terms of the bbc correspondent mm. knows more it's more like i'm an academic okay i'll get credit if i'm on bbc you know what what am i getting out of this and that's how many people say okay i'll just talk to bbc cnn if anybody else comes they're not good enough for me and this is kind of you, you know that th that's what i'm saying is that it's important. Is it because it is a bit like that yeah i mean many people People will just be very selective in terms of which uh, who they talk to mm. because you know let, let, let's put it this way uh, presumably so somebody you know from 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 Ukraine would contact me and I'd say no because I don't want to talk to Ukrainians so somebody from let's say Fox News contact me and I would say no because I only talk to 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 certain channels and I I, I think this the, the, the this this idea is that okay yeah he's he's doing his podcast and and that's great you know it's not like you know it's not like buying a uh, Pepsi or cola I'll buy kind of some niche brand but it's honest and and, and you know it might it might be much better but it's worth discovering you know and and, and that's kind of the non-mainstream stuff that that I think you know is very appreciative and we've seen it during the war a lot of people kind of contributing to who don't have academic names who don't have doctor titles professor titles but who are very much on point and have a much better grasp of realities and you know some of the kind of the, the theoretical stuff that, that that you read out there sure yeah and uh, thanks a lot also for um suggesting uh these things and um yeah so now now it's time to wrap it up absolutely um, so this will be the, the last thing i'm saying and it was just because you said this thing about uh mainstream media um and to to some people this um conversation series that I'm doing mm -hmm. will may seem a bit like um, a big critique of the main, mainstream media. And actually it is, it's, it's not a, a critique necessarily no. of mainstream media, because I think mainstream media provides a platform, which is way better for uh, discuss, discussing and um, taking opinions uh, about Ukraine. Um, but, but it, it, it is a sort of critique in the way that I want to tell the mainstream media to stop writing, for example, the separatist regions um, of um, Donetsk and Luhansk and and the pro-Russian Crimea, uh, stuff like that, um, because I believe that they have the ability to stop doing that. It is, it is just about conveying them that it is more wrong to do the other thing than the other thing. It is more neutral to say always what I'm suggesting should be said than it is to do the other thing. Um, so yeah, so that's the message also to the mainstream media um, in Denmark, um, and that this is also not a critique of them. It is actually a serious 
encouraging people uh, to, to listen more to mainstream um, media to, to a certain degree, but then to also self-reflect and be um, positively critical about the stuff that they are that they are hearing and that they should um, always um, bring their values with them. So, so yeah, I think that would be the last thing to say today. Um, and then I would just uh, wish you a very good weekend. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to talk um, again at some point in the future that there will be after then that I have done this round. And then I will maybe go back to um, all the conversations again uh, or something like that. Um, and then you can um, yeah, do whatever you want when, when I mm-hmm. share the conversation and stuff like that. And um, you can follow, we can, if you have Facebook, I'm pretty active in there. I have Twitter. Uh, you have Twitter? Perfect. Mm-hmm. I think I follow you on Twitter already. Uh, the last tweet I wrote was something about, <laughs> uh, I, the, the last tweet I wrote was something about the nation states of continental Europe never <laughs> having fought for freedom because it's all either former empires or the, uh, or, um, controlled areas of former empires. So it's stuff like that. And, People doesn't always really like that too much, uh, but yeah, stuff like that. Uh, and then there I will also share, yes, the, the podcast. Oh no, the, the conversation. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, so I, I'm, I'm sorry because I'm, I'm 10 minutes late to my other appointment. So I, as much as I enjoy this, I really, really have to go now. Sure. I wish you a brilliant weekend and I look forward to hearing from you, uh, you know, keep in touch via email, Twitter, whatever suits you best. WhatsApp. I'll drop you the, the my work number. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. That was the conversation with Marina Myron, and I'm very glad she wanted to speak with me. So once again, I want to emphasize my gratitude towards her. And I think among a lot of important takeaways, one that I want to take with me is that consistency is key. And therefore, there should also sound a huge, huge thanks to the producer of this episode, Frederik Wagner. And now listen to the whole Churchill speech. Hey. Almost a year has passed since I came down here at your headmaster's kind invitation in order to cheer myself and cheer the hearts of a few of my friends by seeing some of our old songs. The 10 months that have passed and seen very terrible, catastrophic events in the world, ups and downs, misfortunes. But can anyone sitting here this afternoon, this October afternoon, not feel deeply thankful for what has happened in the time that has passed, and for the very great improvement in the position of our country and of our own? Why, when I was here last time, we were quite alone desperately alone, and we had been so from five or six months. We were poorly armed. We are not poorly armed today. But then we were very poorly armed. We had the unmeasured menace of the enemy and their air attack still beating upon us. You yourselves had had experience of this attack. And I expect you are beginning to feel impatient that there had been this long lull with nothing particular turning up. You cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are. Yet without imagination, not much can be done. Those people who are imaginative 
see many more dangers than perhaps see just. Certainly many more than will happen. But then they must also pray to be given that extra courage to carry this far-reaching imagination. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period, I'm addressing myself to the school, surely in this period of ten months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood alone as only a year ago, and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no preaching, no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. You sang here a verse of a school song. You sang that extra verse written in my honor, which I was very greatly complimented by and which you have repeated today. But there is one word in it I want to alter. I wanted to do so last year, but I did not venture to. It is the line, not less we praise in darker days. I've obtained the headmaster's permission to alter darker to sterner. Not less we praise in sterner days. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our hatred, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. 